Hi, and thanks for tuning in to My Adventures at Home Brewing. I'm Dan Matthews, and come along with me as we talk about things for new home brewers, from gadgets to how we got started to, I don't know, all the mistakes we make along the way. So come along for the ride and have a beer or two along the way. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for coming into the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, a little bit about today, we're going to be talking with uh, Coulter Wilson from uh, Home Brewing DIY. Uh, Coulter's a pretty cool guy. He had me on his show last week. And uh, yeah, so uh, hang tight and uh, kick around for the ride for and a beer or two along the way on on My Adventures at Home Brewing DIY. Uh, not My Adventures at Home Brewing DIY, but My Adventures at Home Brewing. <laughs> so... Here we go, guys. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have a, another podcaster online with us today, Coulter Wilson, all the way in Colorado. Coulter, thank you so much for coming in today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, no worries. I see you have company. Oh, yeah. I'm working in my home office, and you are probably seeing my wife's shoulder from her desk. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's all good. So, uh, well, we're going to... Thanks again for coming in today. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Um, after last week, uh, I did learn a lot about yeasts and everything else, but there, I felt there was a couple of things that we could have talked about uh, as, a, as a new home brewer, just so to keep people on the straight and narrow a little bit. So before we kick into that, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into home brewing? Yeah, uh, I would say my first batch that I ever brewed was back in 1998. I, I think I had just turned 21 years old and somebody had gifted me a can of Cooper's pre-hopped wort. And this, so example would be the, the process for this, uh, this can of wort would be pretty simple. You basically just heat up the water you're going to make your beer out of, add the can of malt extract in it with hops and everything in it, boil it for an hour and then ferment it with the packet of yeast in it and then bottle it and you're ready to go. It was, it was a, it's a really, really easy kind of setup. The thing is, is that the, the beer that I made out of that, and it was an IPA bitter was the style was not very good. Uh, you know, and, and back in 1998, things were a lot different. If you were starting to homebrew, you had things like, for example, the only sanitizers you really could use were iodine. If you went to your homebrew store, those were the types of sanitizers they had. They had alkaline-based cleaners, but they only had like iodine-based sanitizers. And so if you were like bottling and you needed to sanitize your bottles, you had to clean your bottles, sanitize them with iodine, rinse the iodine out, then you then actually fill the bottles. And so I think that right now homebrewing is a lot more approachable because come 2013, I started brewing again. And back when I started doing that, things had changed a lot from 1998 to 2013. It's a long time, but the big change that was there was that you now have things like star sand with the ability to have a no rinse sanitizer and the ability to really streamline that process. Also, when you went and bought a kit from like your homebrew kit, it was more of a partial mash versus these like cans of, of, uh, pre-done stuff though in the 90s there were definitely homebrewers that were doing all grain there was you know all of that existed but it was uh it was definitely less predominant than it is today okay right on so i've been finding as myself as a new homebrewer is that there's a multitude of equipment 
there's a multitude of information, grains, hops, yeasts. It can be very overwhelming, which is when you just get into it, it's like, where do I start? Exactly. I totally agree with that. So one thing I have learned is to kind of start small. And I just, personally, I jumped right into all green because I'm fortunate enough to work at a craft brewery so I can get a lot of guidance from the brewmaster and a lot. Um, but if I was to get into it as a new home brewer and just go straight to all green, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a huge learning curve, but yeah. not, nothing wrong with that. What, do you th- what should a person go for if they're just starting out? I think simplicity is is really the key, and you said that already. I also think that the biggest thing you should be doing is learning from others, and and I'm you, not the dogmatic type of learning from others, like you're, you know, hey, I went and talked to my buddy, and he said that this is the way I should do it. You need to go out and actually seek out real information on your own, and and I'll give you an example. When I first started homebrewing again back in 2013 and really wanted to start getting ready to brew at a real level and not just do cans of Coopers, right? What I did is I started bringing in all types of information. And, I, and what I mean by that is I started doing things like listening to podcasts. So if, you, if they're listening to this show right now, you're doing the right type of thing. You're, you're seeking out the information to become a better brewer. And there's a lot of resources on in just the podcast world that's going to give you very good information. There's lots of YouTube videos out there that are going to give you good information. I would also recommend joining some sort of homebrewing community out there because you're going to A, be able to get a lot of information, but you're also going to get it your questions answered directly and be able to get those answered quickly. And some great resources out there I would recommend are the Reddit community. So for example, r forward slash homebrewing is probably one of the most active homebrewing communities out there. Uh, Years of knowledge in that forum. For example, we're talking the greats of homebrewing. So I know that uh, Drew Beecham, who does the Experimental Homebrewing podcast, uh, has written the the book Experimental Homebrewing, uh, also just wrote a book called Simplified Homebrewing. Those guys, you know, I know he's on that Reddit forum and I talk to him all the time on that. Uh, for another great resource is the AHA forum. So the American Homebrewers Association forum and Homebrew Talk. Those are, are great places to find great information about homebrewing. The other place I would also recommend is find a good set of blogs out there that make the styles of beer that you like. So don't, there, there's a lot of general homebrewing blogs out there. But there's also some that are very specific. Like, for example, there's Brewlosophy, which I think is a, a, a bit of a more advanced kind of homebrewing blog when it comes to some of the experiments that they're doing. But they also have a good resource of recipes and things like that on their website. But there's also things like uh, uh, BarclayPerkins.blogspot.com. Uh, that's actually, uh, come on, what is his name? He's pretty, he's pretty popular. Oh, why can't I think of his name? I'm in the middle of an interview. But the, the gentleman who writes that is, uh, he, he does very historic t- types of English ales and has lots of recipes on it. And the idea is that if you're in English ales, you want to read that blog because you're going to start to see the patterns when it comes to creating recipes because those are the things you're going to be looking for is there's a, there's a certain 
set of rules that all of us live by as home brewers, right? The, the process to make beer is the same no matter what style of beer you're going to make. And so the idea is you start to see, hey, this is what makes an English beer versus this is what makes an American style beer or a blonde ale or an IPA. Uh, this is what makes a, uh, a German lager, right? And as you start to understand those different styles, you start to be able to kind of go off on your own and, and not be able, not be set up to have to make uh, clone recipes from your buddies or anything like that. So I, I, that's kind of a lot there, but the idea is that I think that the best thing you could do when learning to homebrew is access the wealth of knowledge the community provides, not just podcasts if you're listening to them but also mm. forums uh facebook groups all that stuff okay is there any specific ingredients that you find are a little bit more forgiving than others i mean lme in a can that's the as well as forgiving as you can get but i'm talking if you're if you're going straight to all grain is there anything yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to go all grain, I think you need to first thing learn how to build a recipe. Mm -hmm. like, aside from brewing, right? You, you've got to have a recipe to go from and you have to, you know, years of experience for me now knows that when I look at a recipe, I could tell you a good recipe from a bad one, just based on looking at it and being like, yeah, that's not really my style, I guess would be the way I would put it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is when you're building a recipe, there are, certain components that every recipe is going to have. Every recipe is going to have a base malt, some sort of base malt. And it's going to make up a large a majority of the entire grist. And, and if you're new, a grist is actually the list of ingredients that are in your, your, yeah. your grist is your grain, grain bill. bill. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but if you're looking at, uh, at the grist of a recipe, a majority of this is going to be base malt. Whether you're making a porter or a stout, or you're making a lager that's a pilsner, the majority of that grain bill is going to be some sort of grain of, of base malt. And what is base malt? Base malt is really the sugar content of your beer, right? That's you trying to actually hit the right amount of sweetness to create the alcohol that you end up having in beer. So when you are creating your recipe, there are many different types of base malt. And I think that learning what the base malts are and what the different base malts are becomes really important when creating a new recipe. But a, a great place to start if you're an American or in North America is going to be your standard American two-row. Or if you're in Canada, your Canadian two-row, right? And so the idea is that your, your local country of origin is going to have some sort of two-row base malt, which is going to be a very light in color, usually three SRM, and SRM is the darkness of your beer. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to look for something that's around there, and it's going to have a high, it's going to have a high conversion rate. So it's going to allow you to create the sugars. What I would recommend when somebody says to me, hey, I want to make my first all-grain beer, is go with a smash beer. Go with a single hop and a single grain and not for the fact that you're trying to make a blonde ale or you're trying to make anything. The reason a smash beer works really well is it's so simple and non-complicated. You're not putting yourself out to, your goal is, hey, I need to get through this. I want to get the, the beer to convert. <laughs> I want to yeah. boil it and get the flavor of hops in it. I want to put yeast in it, have it ferment and bottle it and then have a beer that comes out the end. And it may not be the best beer in the world because to be honest, I think smash beers in general tend to be pretty one dimensional, 
But the idea is you went through a full all grain process with the most simple recipe you can think of, which is basically base malt and some yeah. sort of hop, right? And you only, and you're only picking one hop. So if you, if you're a beer snob and you have a certain hop you want to do, just use that. Right. Yeah. And, and that would be my recommendation for the first all grain beer somebody does is a smash beer is always a great place to start. Yeah. I find smash beers are great because one, uh, you find out the characteristics of the base malt. Yeah. You f- you'll find out how biscuity it is, how malty it is, how sweet it is. Um, also the SRM that you're going to get out of it. Plus for the hops, you get to know what the actual characteristics are of the hop you get to know because you'll smell the aroma out of it once you crack the the cryo pack open or the packet comes in give it a sniff i know like things like challenger challenger's got that really nice melon smell to it uh then there's uh amarillo it's got that amarillo i find it's hard to explain but it's got a really nice kind of floral mellow almost grassy like uh it's like a melon grassy for me yeah yeah exactly yeah and i find that is the best way to figure out what a hop and a malt will do together. Totally. And one thing you're also going to do is when you do a smash beer, you're not, you don't have high, don't get me wrong. We all have high expectations of our first beers, but you don't really in a smash beer have these high expectations that you're going to make the perfect clone of your favorite beer. Right. Oh yeah. And so for me, I, I think that when you make your first all grain batch, my personal advice when somebody asks me, I'm like, Hey, just make a smash beer and get through the process because you're going to be throwing so many variables in that process that you're going to have to adjust for that. You didn't know was going to happen. If that makes any sense, because you could do all the reading and studying and you're going to miss something Uh, that at least when it comes to figuring out your ingredients and your recipe, you know that if it's a smash beer, it's as simple as the recipe can get. And then you're going to be able to work through the process. I'd also say that the other big piece when it comes to advice, and I can't stress this enough, good notes make a huge difference. This is something that you have to be in the habit of as a new brewer, whether you're doing an extract batch or whether you're doing a, a... like me or you, or we're, we're more advanced home brewers. The idea is that as you're going through that process, good notes are the only way you're going to improve because you, when you go back and are looking for problems, and let's just say you, you, you made a beer that you don't love and you want to analyze it with somebody. Let's say you're going to go down to your local homebrew shop and talk to somebody that you're trusted or you have a friend that's a trusted brewer. I can't fix anything if you don't have good notes. And so the idea is that, you know, I need to know what the, I need to know what temperature it was fermented at. I need to know what exactly went into the grain bill. I need to know what your mash temperature is. I need to know if anything weird happened, write it down. And so the idea is that though, and you think you're going to remember because that's what you're into. But when you're 15 or 20 batches into this, they all start to become a blur. And notes become a very, very big deal. So it's, I, I say brew day notes and good upfront notes, like when you're creating your recipe and, and figuring out what your process is going to be are, are highly important when starting out. Yeah. <clears throat> I know for me, I haven't been the best of uh, keeping notes unless it's a really 
specific beer that I, I really want to keep track of. If it's something simple like a pale ale, though, I know it's okay. It's, it's X amount. I know the, I know the process just to drop it in it. Cause I know what the results is going to be. I'm not going to bother, but that's me. But I know when I came, it comes time to track everything for temperatures and everything else like that. I'm a bit of a gadget geek. Um, I use a Play-Doh airlock. Yep. Very familiar with that. Yeah. It's a great little tool. It, it feeds not only where you're at in the fermentation process, where you are, because it acts as like a hydrometer, but it also feeds you where your temperature is, if it spikes, if it drops or whatever else. And it feeds it right into my software so I can keep track of saying, okay, well, it's been steady here, but then say about six days into it, for some reason, it spiked and went up to 75. So I have an idea where it could have gone wrong. Totally. And I have very similar process. I use a tilt hydrometer, which is essentially a floating hydrometer instead of a airlock, right? And it also gives me temperature and gravity readings in real time. The one thing though, is that when you look at a device like that, that's only giving you one component of the full brewing process, right? Fermentation is super important. I'm never going to discount its importance. I would say we make wort and yeast makes beer is the best saying ever made by a home brewer, right? Mm -hmm. And so monitoring fermentation is super important. And whether you're doing it by hand and taking samples and doing hydrometer samples through the fermentation, that's one way of doing it. Doing it electronically through a Play-Doh or a ice spindle or a a tilt hydrometer is another way. But those are obviously going to give you keys and indicators of where you might have an off flavor based on things like fermentation temperature, weird swings and in drops on gravity over time. If, something's unexpected, you're expecting a a slower fermentation and it happened faster, maybe there was something wrong, right? Mm. But the other part is, is that what I'm also talking about is things like tracking mash temperatures, things like tracking how much your water temperature was, not your water temperature, but things like what is the content of the minerals in your water? And you're a home brewer at the beginning. I'm not telling you that you need to do that right out the gate. The point I'm trying to say is that there's a lot on the hot side that you should be keeping notes on because of their importance. And, and I'll give you an example. The last beer I just made, well, I have one in the fermenter, but the beer just before that, I, I just made like a, a house golden ale. I had a couple of bags of base malt laying around and I decided to do a very simple beer. And it was uh, 50%, the, the grist was 50% Pilsner malt and 50% uh, caramel pale ale malt by Viking, which was a new malt for me. And I bought an entire 55 pound bag of it and I was like trying to figure it out. One, one great trick, just FYI for building building layers and in, in flavors into a recipe is actually blending base malts because specialty malts are the other malts like, you know, like uh, roasted barley or crystal malts and darker yeah. roasted malts. Those are going to be your flavor components and darkness components when it comes to any recipe. But what I'm talking about is building flavor complexity. One of my favorite things to do in a recipe is blending base malts. So for example, if I start off with, with uh, an American two row blending it with some, with some, uh, with some golden promise or a, a different type of base malt, maybe a, a, a German Pilsner and a bit of golden promise blended together is going to give you a much different 
flavor in the base beer, right? And you're not doing anything because there's both base malts. It's not super complex, but the idea is you're just bringing out, we're talking about subtlety in a recipe. Point. So back to what I was saying in my, my, I, I'm digressing. Sorry. Uh, All right. But the last recipe I made was 50% base malt uh, and it was 50% Pilsner, 50% this caramel uh, pale ale malt by Viking. And I, and that's all that was in the grist. And then from there, I just did some Liberty hops and some Mount hood. And uh, it was a, a, a one ounce uh, bittering charge of Liberty and then like a half ounce of Mount hood and another half ounce of Liberty, you know, towards the end for some flavor hops. Mm. Right. Um, but here's what happened is that I fermented it with an expectation of my fermentation dropping to only 1.010. And it actually ended up finishing at 1.002, which is a really big miss on my final gravity. Yeah. And so I went back and looked at my notes and was like, whoa, this is really weird what's going on. And what I had noticed is that in my mashing temp profile, I had some parts in it early in the mash where I was in the high 140s, which now makes your, makes your beer more fermentable, right? Yeah. And so therefore, if I were mashing it in at 153 or 154, I would have had a much, it would have had more body and less fermentable. Yeah. And I would have hit where I was supposed to in my target of my gravity. But I, had I not taken that down as a note, I wouldn't have remembered and I wouldn't have known what was wrong. And so next time I know that when I make that beer, hey, I got to make sure that my mash temperature is a little bit warmer because even if I miss my final gravity by a point or two, not a big deal, but almost 10 points of final gravity. That's huge. That actually makes you, yeah, I'm shooting for a 5% beer and ended up with a 6% beer. So A, I have a full percent more of alcohol and it was a much drier beer. The beer tastes delicious and is a great beer. I've been drinking it all week. I actually quite enjoy the beer. But <laughs> the idea is, is that wasn't what I was going for. It wasn't my intent, right? right? And so these are the kinds of things that you run into as a new home brewer. And these are the types of things that notes become very important for. Because to me, the goal the difference between a good brewer and a good brewer makes good beer, but a great brewer makes that same great beer 10 times in a row. And it's always the same. Yeah. And, that, and that's a lot of, of what we're all really aiming for is to be able to reproduce that beer consistently time and time again. And I totally agree with you on that. And I agree that, you know, notes are an important thing and all that. It's, it's getting into the habit of doing it because I know once you once you start as a new person out and I'm speaking totally from experience you just want to go you just want to all right fire it up get the water hot get it to where it's supposed to be hopefully it holds dump everything in and go for broke yep but that doesn't always work homebrewing is a is an is a lesson is a lesson in patience on every level oh yes <laughs> yes it is Oh, yes. I mean, I, I'll admit I've had to dump out uh, two batches because I totally miscalculated the, how much sparge water I was going to need. So I went from, all right, I only, only need to bring up my Robo Brew to, say, the 15 liter mark. Okay, that's fine. And I'm like, but why am I looking at it? And the sparge water is not bringing me up. I'm following, following my directions. Get there, let it ferment out. I'm like, that just looks like a big bowl of goopy mess inside my fermenter yeah uh and and so 
Yeah, totally. And and what I would also recommend a lot of brewers doing if you're going to go all grain and and skip everything, brew in a bag is a great way to start. And the mm. reason I say brew in a bag is a great way to start is that it's very it's a lot less complicated. I've been all grain brewing for almost a decade now and I have brewed on all types of systems from a three vessel system down to a brew in a bag. I keep going back to brew in a bag because not because it, well, a, because it's fast and I'm at a time in my life, I have a wife and a kids and I'm running a podcast and, and, uh, work in a job and, and just, you know, the time mm-hmm. constraints to sit down for six hours and do a brew day. It's just not there as much as it was when I first started. The other part is that I've got my brew in a bag system down to where I can knock out an entire all grain batch in four to four and a half hours. And I can't do that in any other system. I can't, like, if I go to a, a single infusion mash in a, in a cooler with a sparge, I can't, it just adds more time that I don't yeah. have. And so really those are the big constraints that I personally have when it comes to creating a, a, a current recipe. But when it comes to simplicity, it also is a very simple way to brew in that you, you, it's a full volume, you, you, what you, you start with is the full amount of water you're going to have in a single vessel, which is your, your kettle. You're going to steep it in that, with that bag. Uh, I highly recommend, uh, we, you know, one of my, one of my sponsors of my show is the brewinabag.com guys. Uh, they make the brew bag and mm-hmm. I, and I can't recommend their bag enough. It is a little bit more expensive than one you can buy at your local homebrew store, but this bag is like no bag out there. And I'm not saying this because they're my sponsor. Uh, I've used this bag for years and, and I'm still on the first bag I ever bought from them. And in a year wow. I went through three other brew bags because they wore out over time because they couldn't right. handle the amount of heat you're putting on them. Right. Okay. So just, just as a, as an FYI quality is always something yeah. that comes to your equipment. Well, just as like on that topic, as a quick hack, like I have a robo brew and I love it. And in a course of a, of a brew day, I can bang out a brew in about five hours, which is great. Yeah, which is, which is great. That's a very fast brew day. Yeah. But for me to minimize how much crap or shit goes inside of the actual kettle itself, I put the malt pipe inside of a brew bag and then I set it down inside the strike water with the, with the grain and all that in it. So when I take it out, it minimizes how much, uh, true goes inside of the, uh, fermenter which is to me it works great because my beers have since i've been doing that have been coming out crystal clear yeah um but i've also been using a hot basket to minimize how much uh hot particulate gets down towards the pump because i've clogged the pump on that thing a few times Um, yeah if you have pumps just throwing your hops in is just not an option because you're gonna clog them i've clogged i've clogged a plate chiller early in my uh in, in my days just throwing hops in and, and even then I could have just done it and whirlpooled it because the system I was on could take a whirlpool, but the, uh, but yeah, totally. I clogged my friend's uh, plate chiller and, and he still gives me crap about it. So, <laughs> and so he should, <laughs> so, if you want to talk about something hard to clean, clean a plate oh, chiller. <laughs> we're not going to go there on this show. Uh, so let's talk about some, some, some don'ts. Cause we've talked about some things that we should do like the notes and, yeah. and, and start out with like a smash beer. So we understand how everything works. What shouldn't we do as a home brewer? I mean, I personally, I'm like, 
what you shouldn't do, you shouldn't just go out, buy everything, and expect to understand it right off the get-go. Yeah, I would say the number one thing you shouldn't do is take shortcuts on sanitation. Mm. I think sanitation is such a big deal that when it comes, I mean, you're essentially, and outside from getting an infection in your beer, which is going to make an off flavor, we're talking about you're making a food product in five gallon batches. You're essentially making things at the size you would for a restaurant. And you're going to share this with your friends and family. And you don't want to do something that's going to make somebody sick. That being said, the reason people drink beer longer than they've drank water essentially is because beer is a a very, very safe product. Uh, It's very hard to actually make you sick from the fermentation process. But we're talking about things like, contamination from you know possibly from chemicals or contamination from like hey you don't want to uh you know mash things with something that's just dirty right so so to me it's those are the types of things that when it comes to things to not take shortcuts on are things that have to do with sanitation the other part of that is don't over worry it like people become so worried about this process that you have really no control over. Like you have no control over fermentation. Once it gets going, you're, you're out of this mix. Yeah, yeah. You can monitor it, but you, you can't change anything. Right. And so once fermentation starts, you kind of got to let it run its course and do its thing. And don't worry about things. Don't like, don't sit there and look at the bubbles on the top and it's probably just a normal Cruisin or Croisin. And you don't want people, and everybody's like, I see it all the time, people going, hey, is this infected? And it's like, it looks just totally fine. It looks fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that a lot of, a lot of the uh, groups on Facebook. I'm a part of like the Canadian Home Brewers, uh, the Robo Brew guys, Firmzilla guys, uh, and a lot, of, like, a lot of new people. Go, I'm not sure what's going on with this. It looks fuzzy. I'm like, well, if it's fuzzy, throw it out. If it looks like it's just bubbling like you would see like if you put yeast in water to if you're going to make bread and it's just warming up and it's looking like like uh, kind of like a honeycomb you're fine just yeah. l- let it be let it do its thing it'll die down it'll drop and you're good what you should be worried about are things that are black oh right? shit yeah yeah because that that at that point you've got mold or something like that growing in your beer but yeah. for the most part you're not going to have that problem with beer because it's such an acidic beverage. Uh, you're already starting it off at a pretty low pH because the standard uh, beer pH when you're done is some like you're mashing somewhere around 5.3 to 5.2. Uh, so you're already kind of in, a, in an acidic state and finished beer finishes it around a pH of 4.1. And mm. it's also a, a, an anaerobic environment. And so uh, molds and things like that don't grow well in those right right uh, they they need they do need oxygen though you are putting oxygen into your beer to get the yeast going but the yeast actually creates that anaerobic environment and so in all reality that just to talk about the safety of beer right here the yeast itself is what creates that safe environment because it creates a perfect environment for itself uh but yeah the point i'm just trying to make though is that you don't want it you don't want to worry and overly over worry uh you're you once you've pitched your yeast let it do its thing put it into a bottle let it do its thing be very patient and what's going to come out the other end good or bad is going to be beer and you made that beer yourself and there's always room to improve 
but doing things like overly worrying about it, opening your fermenter too much, things like that are, are the ways to actually infect your beer and do so because you're just messing with it. Don't mess with your beer. Just let it do its thing. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that's it for the show. So thanks a lot, Coulter. I appreciate it very Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Uh, we'll have to maybe do a virtual brew day some way day, time down the road. Absolutely. I, I'm always down for that. Uh, you know, uh, honestly, thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, if, uh, if anybody would like to look at my podcast, you could head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. Check that out. Um, and I'm on all the social medias. Just look for homebrewingdiy. And, uh, you know, love to hear any feedback from any homebrewers and, and always glad to answer a question from anyone. Awesome. Thanks, Coulter. All right, guys, that's it for this show. Thank you very much for tuning in to my adventures in home brewing. Uh, check us out on uh, Google Podcast, Anchor, Apple Podcast, or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. Leave us a review. Leave Coulter a review on his podcast, too. It goes a long way to keep us going and also helps us keep bringing information about how to make a really great beer. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you on the other side. So I'd like to say thank you very much to Coulter Wilson for coming on the show today. If you want to check him out, go check out his website at uh, homebrewingdiy.fm. Uh, you can also find him on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and also Spotify or whatever it is you use for your podcasts. He is a fantastic person, has lots of great information, has some really cool episodes along the way. Uh, please go check him out, show him some love, and uh, subscribe to his podcast, and subscribe to mine, uh, My Adventures in Home Brewing. And uh, thanks a lot for coming along for the ride and uh, having a beer or two along the way. See you on the other side, folks.